in general, Portland is not a super competitive place. I think we all tend to feel like we can talk to each other and get recommendations and insights from each other. I mean, there, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, like if I see something on a menu, that's an ingredient that I'm excited about, I can ask that chef where they get that from. And they're not going to be withholding of that information. And I think that that's different. And I, in my experience in other markets, that is the exact opposite. It's like you have some sort of vendor, you're going to keep that to yourself. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast, your portal to the minds of culinary geniuses from across the United States. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. Today, I have a special treat for you. I am in the culinary hotspot of Portland, Oregon, hosting a panel discussion for Simrise, during Star Chef's The Rising Stars with some of the city's culinary frontrunners. We have got Chef Matt Meyer from Heavenly Creatures, Chef Bonnie Morales from Kashka, Chef Kyle Christie from Street Disco, bartender Katsumi Manabe from Scotch Lodge, and pastry chefs Tara Lewis from Tusk. Join me as I delve into the journeys that led these professionals to the apex of their careers, explore the aha moment, and uncover the motivations that pulled them to the vibrant city of Portland. I'll delve into their sources of inspiration and creative processes, dig into their approach to sourcing local ingredients, and get their insights on the latest trends shaking up the culinary scene. This exceptionally long episode promises to be a deep, insightful exploration of Portland's gastronomy, and I can't wait to share it with you. Do you want at least to introduce yourself, just mention your name, the restaurants, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Matthew Mayer. I am the CDC over at Heavenly Creatures, which is a new wine bar in Portland, Oregon. Bonnie Morales, the executive chef and owner of Kachka. Uh, my name is Cuts. I'm the I run the bar program at Scotch Lodge. My name is Kyle. I'm the chef and owner of Street Disco. I'm Tara Lewis. I'm the corporate pastry chef for Submarine, which includes Ava Jean's Tusk. So let, let's start from um, the beginning. In fact, can you share with us your journey uh, from, in fact, when you started to you know develop your career and you know who you become today? And I, I just want to as well understand. If there was like a haha moment when you say like, okay, this is now what I want to do, at least for several years, you know, in front of me. So I was not originally planning on doing anything culinarily. I was actually studying paramedic and also doing a political science degree through a university in Detroit, Michigan, where I'm from. My now wife at the time got me a side gig to do a catering job for the International Auto Show, which <laughs> okay. is 
in Detroit every year. We did a catering event for Mercedes uh, where I met a chef who then later took me on. I started apprenticing, working just as like a garmage station. That transitioned into me going to work at a restaurant that I would later be the CDC at after four years where the chef was a Sioux, executive Sioux at 11 Madison Park. So that went from being casual to very not casual very quickly. I became a sous chef within a year and then went from working like 40 hours a week to 60, at which point straight A's went to straight B's. And I decided that I should, instead of wasting all the money I was spending on a political science degree that I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do with, I stopped doing that. The paramedic thing, although very promising and was nice for all the education and life experiences, just didn't pay. Uh, I was making better money being a Sioux on salary. I loved the work. I was studying on my times off. I was thinking about cooking at all times. And within, after being a Sioux for a year, became CDC of the place. Uh, I was CDC there for about three years. And then I kind of hit a wall where I realized I was kind of big fish, small pond, was still roughly in the same geographic area that I was born and raised in. At 28, my wife and I, and still don't, have kids. And we decided like, if we're not going to we don't want to do what our parents did, which is live and die in the same city that you grew up in. Her brother's from New York and Chicago didn't seem like too much of a change from Michigan. So we decided San Francisco, we can't afford, but we'd already been to Portland. It had a cool food scene. It reminded me a lot of the kind of fun and funky notion of the Detroit food scene. So it's like, let's move to Portland. I am Bonnie. So I also came to cooking very roundabout. I will say my parents opened a restaurant with their best friends when I was in middle school. And it was like a recipe for everything you should not do in opening a restaurant. They had no restaurant experience. They kept their day jobs. They were best friends that went into partnership together and whatever. They didn't know what their con It was eclectic. They that closed down. And so I thought that cooking was something I would never do, though I did help them a lot on the weekend. So I guess technically that was my first job when I was like 12. But high labor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned recently because I now have kids that when you employ your own children, all the labor laws do not apply. Oh, really? So, okay. <laughs> anyway, I went to school at the University of Illinois. I'm from Chicago and went to school for industrial design. Graduated, had my dream job as a consultant in a consultancy in New York. And it was everything I thought I wanted and I was miserable and I spent all my time, it was in Union Square and I spent all my free time at the farmer's market instead of at my job. I got them to get me to work from, I got them to agree to let me work from home, which was great for me, but ultimately just showed me more and more that all I wanted to do was cook all day. So instead of working, I would like go to the farmer's market and then cook all day. <laughs> so then I quit my job and went to culinary school up at the CIA. When I graduated from there, I started, I wanted to move back home to Chicago. So I got a job there and worked in various restaurants in Chicago. My husband and I met there working in restaurants. I had decided at one point that I wanted to learn more about wine. So I moved to the front of house and in Chicago at the time that meant working at True, which had an incredible wine program and service. We won a James Beard Award for service that year. So, but anyway, he's, that's like his whole world is service. And so anyway ultimately got to where I am now because he loved the food that was in my family table, which is my family's from the former Soviet Union. They immigrated as refugees the year before I was born. And I thought the food was kind of embarrassing and not something you should really <laughs> share with people. And I would like warn him when he'd come over to my parents' house, like you might want to come fed already. And anyway, he turned out to absolutely love it and changed my worldview of what that food could be. I, I had a little bit of a paradigm shift to realize that I I was looking at it 
wrong, not the other way around. And ultimately, both of us eyes wide open, working in restaurants, our adult, all our most of our all of our adult lives knew that we should never, ever, ever open a restaurant, but realized that if we didn't open something that shared this cuisine with people, that it might never happen. And so we did it anyway. And that's how I got here. My name's Sanawarkit. Scotch Lodge. I was managing Red Robins for a while and it was a really awful job. And eventually one of my bartenders was like, hey, you really like cocktail stuff and you should probably just do that for a living. So I kind of intentionally, I'd had no experience bartending and I went to the nearest restaurant that I knew had horrible turnover because everybody hated working there. So I knew that I could get promoted very quickly. So I made a bartender in uh, two, two and a half months and then spent a year there and then just kept applying and moving up until also places with high turnover have a lot of people quitting that are moving on to better things. And if you're nice to everyone, someone will take you with them. So I ended up at Blue Hour for a little bit. And then the owner of my bar, Tommy Cluse, opened Blue Hour in 2001 as a 17-year-old busser. And he's since like done Whiskey Library and, and Scotch Lodge and Lamont and some other stuff around here. And... We talked and he hired me. I guess I don't have a crazy story. Nobody really trained me anywhere until I got to Tommy, though. Like my first job, they gave me a packet of recipes. And on my first day training, my trainer was like, hey, do you know the recipes? Quiz me on a few. And then she went home. And Blue Hour was a similar situation. So everything was just... My fiance was also on a similar journey. She works at a cocktail bar in town called Teardrop Lounge. And... We would go there and just watch the bartenders work and a lot of tenured bartenders around town. And we just read as many books as we could, um, constantly reading, constantly studying and asking questions. And so it was very intentional to, to bartend. I just wanted to make drinks and be nice to people. It's kind of my favorite thing to do. So it's not like a crazy story, but just kind of decided that was what we want to do. And we both kind of just went for it. And we're happy now. Hey, I'm Kyle. I was a career changer from mental health and addiction services, like at-risk youth. I had done my whole childhood. Decided I wanted to go to culinary school and check that out. So I just did it, paid my way through that. Graduated in, I think, 2012 or 2013 and just kind of started working all over town. I had lots of aha moments, positive and negative. I definitely like swore off the industry and was like, I'm not doing this again, like three or four times. Yet here I am. (laughs) And I just kind of jumped around. I had a lot of things come up out of just happenstance. I started working at Dame back in 2016, just as a one day a week line cook. And suddenly I was the sous chef in a couple months and then they had to fire the head chef. And quite frankly, they just didn't have another option to take over the kitchen. So I just kind of (laughs) fell into it. So my career has been a lot of me just saying yes to things that I don't know what the hell I'm doing and then figuring it out. It means working twice as hard. I've had a lot of saying yes to things then sitting in my car being like, what the fuck did I just agree to? (laughs) I left Dame in 20... 19 to start doing my own pop-ups. I just wanted to kind of like find my own name and build my own brand. Dame was a very established kind of format. So I wanted to do something a little different. Just kind of did pop-ups from there. did a lot of consulting, helped open Bardoon, which is now Dirty Pretty in town. Worked at Olympia Oyster Bar for a while, just kind of hopped around, did weekly pop-ups while working full-time and then pandemic hit and I just kind of leaned into it. We switched our pop-up from Gusto to Street Disco. Over the course of two years, we did, I think, 28 different concepts in like 15 different locations. Just decided we wanted to lean into it and started hunting for some money and finding the right people. And opportunity kind of came up and we bought out a pizza place that's in our existing location and just kind of rolled from there, opened with a shoestring budget and have just been kind of figuring it out ever since. So it's been lots of like fake it till we make it, but just trying to work hard and grind it out and do things with intention.
Hi, I'm Tara. My first job was a prep cook when I was 15. I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland. I decided I really liked it, so I didn't really like cutting onions, so I decided to switch to pastry. I went to the CIA in New York. I stayed in New York for a couple years working for Tom Colicchio. Uh, after that, I decided to move to San Francisco, see something new. I worked for Michael Mina for a few years, really loved the grind. So I ended up staying in San Francisco for a decade. I helped open four restaurants there as the corporate pastry chef. After that, I got a call during pandemic to come up here and do pastries. I didn't like having roommates anymore. My husband and I wanted our own house. So uh, yeah, that was it. So um, you mentioned that, you know, you moved to, to Portland. I know, you know, from what you described, like most of you are not from Portland. Do you have anyone who's from Portland? Are you? The two of you. Okay. So for the three others, what make you move to, to Portland and choose Portland? The strawberries, literally. I'm, Can you develop a little bit when uh, you say that? I mean, more generally speaking, the produce and the things that grow here natively, like the, the mushrooms are incredible. But specifically, my hus my now husband and I um, were here for my brother's wedding. And we had... He's very laid back and kind of accidentally forgot to tell us that we were cooking for his rehearsal dinner. Like the day before we got, or the day we got here, which is the next, the next day was his rehearsal dinner. He's like, Oh yeah, do like just like a hundred people, no big deal. Right. So he like tasked us with getting all the produce together and whatever, making all the food. And we went out to Soviet Island, which is technically part of Portland, but quite agricultural. And we went and picked some strawberries because it was June. And I just have this like very vivid memory of like, biting into a hood strawberry, which was like a peak of happened to be peak of season at the time. And I felt like I had never tasted a strawberry before in my life. And I had worked at many different, very seasonally focused farm to table restaurants before then. So I thought I knew what a strawberry was and I did not know what a strawberry was. And it literally was one of the top reasons we moved here was that I felt like if a strawberry could blow my mind like that, then I had a lot to learn here. Thinking about this, I mean, when we talk to chef from California, for instance, they said, you know, California is the cornucopia of like, you know, fresh food and fresh and, you know, and veggies and so on. So why, why Portland versus California? So California might have the longest growing season. And so there are more things you can find there for a longer period of time. But if you want the best version of that thing, I, I mean, there might be some of those in California as well, but for some things, that's just not the case. And so when it comes to, to, the Pacific Northwest, you just have these like peaks, like seasonal points that although the period might be much shorter, the intensity of flavor is greater. And I think also there's just like a like mindedness, you know, over time, things have changed. I've been here for 14 years now, but I remember when I first moved here, how amazed I was that everybody here knew when chanterelles were in season. And I don't just mean it restaurant industry. I meant like my brother's friends that are school teachers. Everyone knew when hoods were peaking, like they would look out for that. You knew when it was Dungeness crab season. And that sort of specificity and excitement from the general public meant that then growers and producers and makers were inspired and encouraged and pushed to, to develop and, and, and complement those ingredients even more. So I think it's a lot of like honing each other and that makes Portland a really unique place. Sarah, what was your reason for moving here? 
My husband and I are avid campers. So just the outdoors here is just so phenomenal and it's so much easier and accessible than it is in like Northern California. I mean, you need reservations for years out to do anything. Also, I have a lot of friends here that had moved for the food scene and I had visited a few times and always had an amazing experience. And it is really, really cool to be able to just like walk around your neighborhood and there's fruit trees everywhere. It's super inspiring and I've never seen that before. So it was just, you know, kind of a no brainer just to be able to just like go around, be able to pick fig leaves everywhere and just be like, I can make a dish from this. And it's just really great. So yeah, that made me want to just be in it and be able to create from it. So, Okay. And you, Matt? I mean, I have to agree with Chef here. It's the food culture. It's like that everyone here, no matter what realm or like field they're in, seems kind of dialed in to like what's going on naturally around you. Even like, for example, luckily my wife and I just moved. We were living in a 500 square foot apartment with a German shepherd for three years during the pandemic, which is a little tight. We just got a house and like to put it into perspective of what Chef was kind of saying is like, so the other day I was mowing the lawn and the entire fence line is Himalayan blackberries. In the back corner, we have wild mint growing. We have two elderflower trees in the yard and rose bushes everywhere. We also have a babying fig tree. This is just like stumbling. Coming from the Midwest, like that's not a thing. Coming from Chicago, that's not a thing. Like we like potatoes, we like onions, we like gourds, you know, right? It's like, but like you don't like just like expect to walk out unless you plant it yourself and cultivate it over years. Like, you don't just like walk in and be like, oh yeah, that's just like how it is now, you know? And it's like, it's like little things like that. It is the perfect strawberry and peak season. It is like, you can walk down the street and be like, I'm going to take some fig figs off your like neighbor's tree. Is that cool? And they're like, just take them in, like, go ahead. You know, it's just like, and the fact that everyone is dialed into that. And that's like part of the culture here. It kind of lends itself to the breadth of the food industry in this city. This is a food city. Everyone here enjoys food from start to finish. And I think that that kind of is inspiring, but also gives you the room to be playful and not so stuffy with food here. Okay. So, I mean, you're talking about specific, you know, produce from here. I mean, obviously we have seen all around when we are, you know, tasting. So that Marion Berry, it's, you know, everywhere at the moment. There's any other examples of specific, you know, fruits or specific products from, from the area that you can share? Poisonberries. Okay. Matsutake mushrooms. Okay. Beard Orchard has some of the best stone fruit I've ever had. If you get like peak season, like one of their nectarines or like, you just like, you just like put it down. You're just like, okay, you, you win. Go ahead. Okay. So if, you know, seasonal ingredients seems to be an important aspect of the way how you look at, you know, menus. I don't know if it's a case for cocktail as well. We can talk about this, but can you tell us a little bit of, you know, what is your approach of sourcing, you know, produce? from the Pacific Northwest, you know, when you are creating like, you know, a dish or a drink or a dessert? There's mostly just looking at fresh lists from the purveyor, from our farmers. The things that they're excited about are usually the things that are best. So like I said, fig leaves, for example, like I remember three or four years ago, maybe more now, pandemic was like a blip, right? So maybe five years ago now, seeing that on a fresh list from a farmer, fig leaves and like bundles of fig branches. And I was like, I didn't even know that you could use that. But if this farmer is selling it, I'm trusting because this farmer is awesome that they're selling it because it's good. And it turned out to be one of my favorite ingredients to work with. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely feel like taking the lead a lot of the time from what they're excited to grow and share. 
is probably the biggest source for that specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the, a lot of the chefs in town that I know of and myself, like everybody kind of has their little like roster. Sorry. Yeah. Everybody has their like little roster of farmers kind of they, they work with. There's a lot of overlap, but some people have some smaller farmers and it's a lot of that. It's a lot of trusting your farmers, asking what's cool, asking what's in and just kind of figuring it out. You know, we got lots of deliveries where the product comes in and the cooks are like, Oh, what are we doing with tomato leaves? I'm like, well, I have no clue yet, but they had a bunch of them and they're not gonna be around so long. So we'll, we'll figure it out. So it's just people are constantly sourcing from those lists. I feel like our farmers have been innovating a lot in the last couple of years too, bringing in some new products that we've never seen before. So I'll go pick up something and you know, my potato farmer will suddenly show me like a green I've never had before. I'll just walk around the market, eat that and kind of figure out what I'm going to do with it. But I feel like it's a very symbiotic relationship between farmers and chefs in Portland specifically. Okay. Is it the same thing for you, uh, Katsumi, on beverage? I probably use a lot less local ingredients than everyone else here, but I'm like most of the bar programs in Portland, just really attached to my chef. His name is Tim Martell and we have really great food at Scotch Lodge too, but him and our sous chef Tony are just always sharing what they're getting with me. So I kind of piggyback the discovery because I'm not as plugged into this farm network as everyone else here is. I am not as, I didn't uh, come in as familiar with it. Although I really appreciate what you said about seeing as how you're not from Portland, that that community, what everyone seems to be saying about how we all do get excited. Like when hood strawberries come out, like my fiance and I drive to Beaverton and there's like one guy that we know that we get and we'll do like a tequila por Monte thing. And it's, but it, it's definitely not as extensive with like, I have no idea what you do with fig leaves, honestly, but, but you can do a, a nice extraction for a cocktail. I'll definitely do it. And, but I, I, I don't discover it directly on my own as much as I rely on, on my chef really shares with me okay. on stuff. And he is, he is plugged into all those, like kind of the same networks, I think. I think to that, to that point, just to piggyback, I, in general, Portland is not a super competitive place. I think we all tend to feel like we can talk to each other and get recommendations and insights from each other. I mean, there, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, like if I see something on a menu, that's an ingredient that I'm excited about, I can ask that chef where they get that from. And they're not going to be withholding of that information. And the same thing is true of me. If somebody were to ask me where I got something from, I'm not going to like try to keep that farmer a secret or that like producer a secret. Like I'm going to want to share that. And I think that that's different. And I'm in my experience in other markets, that is the exact opposite. It's like you have some sort of vendor. You're going to keep that to yourself. Do you think it's still true today? Cause I, I I've seen like with the younger generation of chef today that has change a bit even across the country but i'm i'm curious to hear what you have to say on this i only have the vantage point of portland as far as the last decade plus goes right like i don't know what's happening in chicago right sure. now but i just know my experience before in other cities was i'm not telling you anything and here i've never experienced that save a couple of situations i'll keep to myself however for the most part everyone really wants to share and help each other and that's not just about ingredients it's like a general sense of like we're all in this together rather than you're on your own buddy if you can make it good luck like yeah. the, you know I, I feel like that doesn't happen here okay. or generally doesn't happen here matt do you have an example of products seasonal product that you are using right now right let's see right now we are using well you guys had the zucchini yesterday that's popping up right now it's the heirloom variety we just got in raspberries sun golds are great right now heirlooms are still a couple weeks out for like actual size and doneness but like i mean the farmer's market's 
pretty phenomenal right now. If you guys have time while you're in town, Wednesdays and Saturdays, go down to like PSU and like go actually check that out. It's actually like, and also culturally, it's cool to see too. There's like a boatload of food stands. There's like, and you can, like she was saying with like talking to farmers and things like that, like all of them are like super receptive and super helpful. And like, it's, it's quite the experience. Obviously, seasonal product matters to consumers. You know, we know that it doesn't matter if it's beverage or in, uh, you know, in food. So as, you know, chef or pastry chefs or sometimes bartenders, that people that you guys emphasize, you know, seasonal, seasonal and local ingredients. And I know it's a tricky question, but I'm still going to ask it. Would you have an advice for a food or a beverage company or spirit company? How people are developing, you know, products, how they can incorporate this element of seasonality in a finished product? All right. I can kind of speak to this only because I try to practice it myself. I worked at Coquine for about a year and a half and Katie Millard really emphasized basically like you don't throw anything out. Right. And so anything can be turned into something else. Like we talked about yesterday with the pea husk vinegar. Right. So finding seasonality and then finding a way to preserve that, not just literally, right, but in a sense that you can use it even when it's out of season. So thinking three steps ahead of like, for example, like if my sun golds tomorrow when I walk in start to over ripen and start to turn, I'm just going to immediately process them and turn them into tomato water. Tomato water, I can then either pass off to a bar program, I can use it for a butter sauce, I can use it like that, but peak season tomato, I can then vac seal it lay it flat and freeze it and pull it back out as like something I can use throughout the seasons. Um, even though it is out of season at that moment, it was picked, preserved and saved during its peak freshness, right? Same thing with like jarring, jamming, uh, fermentation, things like that. I mean, I know that that's like super popular right now, right? With like the Noma fermentation book and things like that. But these are all like really applicable practices that especially if, if you're trying to apply it for using seasonality in a brand or things like that it gives you a little more breadth as to how you might approach that so like ex for example like when you go to the market if like the tomatoes are like amazing that time you're going to probably buy as many as you can and then try to use them as long as you can so that made me think of that it's not just one part of the plant when you're talking about seasonality. And sometimes when you're talking about capturing that, first of all, there's a longer season than just when that sun gold tomato is perfectly ripe. There's also when those leaves are delicious and really fragrant, for example, with tomatoes. Um, and pretty much every single plant there, we actually can consume and should consume almost all of it, but often commercially only one part of it is what we're focusing on. And so there's more to the flavor of that ingredient than that fruit of the plant, for example. And, and when it comes to like harnessing the flavors of it, like we're talking about figs, for example, the leaves and the branches are incredible and they are wholly other flavors that have their own seasonality to them besides the actual fig. So if all you're thinking about is how do I get fig and you're thinking of the fruit, you're missing like 75% of the picture. And so there's a lot more to it than that. I'm sure the obvious answer is just marketing and season and everything. But to what you said first over there, I think before I was a little shy to talk about how we use seasonality in a bar, because a lot of it involves infusions and keeping things preserved. A lot of the history of cocktails is preservation, like milk punches and like even like certain like brandies and stuff is like what to do with fruit when you've made too much and you can't store it because we didn't have refrigerators and stuff back then. So 
you see a lot like teardrop is famous for their brandy cherries they do lap and cherries and they do giant batches they did them a couple weeks ago uh pacific standard with morgenthaler who won the first uh star chef in portland for a bar is famous for um the head strawberries and tequila parmiamonte Nostrana is famous for Nocino. It's a walnut liqueur. You get the green walnuts and they turn black over time and stains everything. But so we definitely like do that pretty extensively in the bar. And, and it's also difficult when you're doing these like preservation methods, but the guests want it right at peak season because you guys work a lot more freshly than we do. But, you know, they, these preserved things can be used year round. And I think that to a certain extent, like the one bar in Portland that does that cherry thing, People don't realize that they have a peak season ingredient available year round, which is a really cool thing. And I, I really appreciate that. I feel like chefs really understand that. But in the in the liquor world, I think it's not as if it's not like freshly muddled, people don't really see it as seasonal. So, OK. So let's start with you, Tara. I'm going to talk a little bit about the creative approach. And so the first step that I would like to understand is what's your sources of inspiration? I mean, it's definitely just going to the market. I don't know what I'm going to make until I see what's out there. And then that's when the wheels start turning. I also, my job's a little bit different because I do have to produce for so many restaurants and I don't work on site. I have to think about the transportation of everything, like how stable it's going to be and what their shelf life is. So I can't just make, you know, a panna cotta, set it in a bowl and be like, it's on for tonight because it has to like drive somewhere and I have another person there. Some of the restaurants I have don't actually have pastry cooks. So I have to keep that in mind as well. Savory cooks and pastry cooks are very different. So yeah, there's just a lot into it. Also, all of the concepts for restaurants are different. One is Italian, one's a pizza shop, one is a tavern, and then Tusk is Mediterranean. So I have to do a lot of reading. I don't know, I'm just like constantly thinking about what flavor profile works for what area of the world the restaurant I'm thinking of doing is. Um, my husband gets kind of mad at me because it's like all I talk about. <laughs> so. so how do you, that? I mean, that's a very interesting point. Um, you have, you know, f- three, four, five different restaurants that you have to develop, you know, concept for. It, we can do the analogy. This is like four different brands, you mm-hmm. know, four different positioning in the language of, you know, marketing. Right. So how, how do you you know, how you approach this. You said you do a lot of reading, yeah. but you know, obviously they are very different consumers that are coming to those restaurants. Mm-hmm. You have as well, the restaurant itself, Tusk is very different from, you know, a pizza, pizza place. So can you tell us a little bit more about your personal approach to development? Yeah, I guess I just start with like what I feel like doing. And then I go over the menu with the chef and see what his vibe is for like seasonality and like how I can basically work into that. Cause obviously you want a cohesive menu and just kind of like, I don't know, get in there. <laughs> but is it as well, like for you, uh, a reflection of having the dessert being the extension of what the chef is going to do on their main menu? Or? Yeah, I think if they're using certain spices or something, I kind of like to tie that in. I never like to uh, do exactly the same thing they're doing. But if I see that like the beginning of a course has something like coriander in it, it's nice to tie it into the end of the course or something like that, just so it does end up being cohesive at the end. Is that what okay. you mean? So we, we tasted your, like three of your dessert yesterday, you know, here in Tusk. 
So how are they different from the dessert that you are making for the pizzeria, for instance? Can you give us an example of what you had that you have at the pizzeria menu? Yeah. So we're actually doing pignoli cookies, which is like an Italian almond cookie there. We have an ice cream sandwich there that has a pizzelle cookie, which is also an Italian cookie. And then it's sandwiched together with a, a strawberry vanilla ice cream swirl. It's just more kid friendly for the pizza concept. And then here I like to be super, super seasonal because that's what the menu is here. And then I like to put in like interesting flavors. Like I used like to use things like Amchur, which is like a green mango flavoring. I use fig leaf mousse here. Just a lot of things I can find in my backyard and stuff. Okay. Kyle, how do you approach like the creative aspect and what's your sources of inspiration? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like echoing a lot of the conversation at this table, but it is for me, it is very much rooted in seasonality. If I gave myself the freedom to just cook everything all the time with all ingredients and use tomatoes all year, I honestly don't think I'd be able to figure out what I was putting on a menu. I kind of need that restraint a little bit. And it's been it's been a lot more pivoting with with the way the climate is these days. Growing seasons have changed a lot in town. Like things are coming. Like I'll have cooks being like, "When's this coming into season?" I'm like, "I honestly have no idea because it's never been 95 degrees in February." <laughs> like it's it's changed a lot, and some of our growing windows have gotten a lot shorter. So for me, it's about bringing those things in. I rely on my larder a lot. We put scraps and vinegars. Our dehydrator never stops going 24 hours a day, so we can bring things in and kind of. Just start playing with stuff and be like, oh, I have an elderflower vinegar sitting in there. But do you authorize to have like kind of an edge in the creative approach and the source of inspiration? I mean, your concept is called street disco. Yes. So, and it comes from a pop-up menu. So I'm guessing that there is something to that brand that is very different from Matt's restaurant, for instance. So I'm trying to understand, you know, your mindset when you are looking at something new in your menu yeah, we have a bit of a we have a bit of like fly by the seat of our pants over over at Street Disco. It's always a joke where like I'll be in the middle of cooking and I'll just have an idea and I'll like go to my cooks and I'm like, all right, guys, hear me out. And they're like, oh god, what what are you about to say? Because I try to compound flavors a lot. I try to have fun with the food, like bringing a lot of technique into it without bringing any pretension into it and have a good time with it. And kind of just flipping things around. I mean, when we first opened, we had a a roasted bone marrow dish and. Our concept is rooted in small plates. I want people to get a variety of things. So I really, really hate people filling up on bread. So we did bone marrow and I was like, well, I don't want to serve bread with it. And I was like, I was a quote in our opening article. It's like the first headline is I was like, what if we just dip the beef in the beef? So we did like a beef tataki where I was like, we'll scoop the bone marrow with the beef to compound those flavors. But doing pop-ups for so long and doing so many different concepts, there's a lot of last minute changes. There's a lot of kind of just figuring out on the fly. I mean, our, our menu will have three items change every single week. Sometimes I show up at the market and there's three new items on the menu just because of stuff I found. So it's very, very like we build our techniques and we build our larder and we have certain flavors we work with, but it's a lot of just improvising um, with us right now. I have a crew that's been with me for a lot of years. So Do you I have like a color. flavor that... You know, if I ask what is like the flavor that represents the best, I mean, uh, street I'd, disco. Yeah, I tend to lean on acid a lot. Like my food, I tend to, I try to brighten up everything. Even when I do desserts, I'm always trying to like have less sugar in it, brighten it up. Even when we do heavy dishes, like during the fall, we'll do a whole braised lamb neck that cooks for like 14 hours and it's insanely fatty and lots of collagen, insanely rich. But even with that, we pile it with just like a fresh mint and olive salad that just has a ton of lemon juice on it. 
for me, it's all about acid and freshness and elevating those things. We're, mm-hmm. we're rooted in natural wine. Like that's how we started. My time at Dame was a natural wine bar. So we also are trying to use flavors that pair really well with the wines that we enjoy. And when we opened Street Disco, our whole our whole idea was if we cook the food we want to eat and we sell the wine we want to drink and we play the music we want to listen to, people are going to receive that. So it's we kind of cook for ourselves even before thinking of the customers. Obviously, we want them to have a good experience, but we're cooking what we want to eat and what we're excited was about. Was it easier to do that when you had a pop-up? It was, yeah. We, we, we've had to. Now that you have a brick and mortar? Yeah, there's definitely like some growing and we're trying to change things a little less, you know? So it's definitely been some growing pains and like we felt like it was the joke. We felt like feral cats that were suddenly house cats, you know, <laughs> five days a week and like having to be a little more consistent with that. So we're, we also try to harness that energy into other things like we do. We host pop-ups almost every single week because we're closed two days a week and half of the pop-ups we host are our own staff. Like I have a whole nother concept that I do at my own restaurant like once a month. So we're trying to like harness that like chaos <laughs> into some other events yeah, yeah. and like kind of dial, dial in what we're doing a little better. I'm curious about you, Bonnie and Matt, about this idea of, you know, having a pop-up. So, and have this, this, sorry, I see it from the outside. I'm not in your business, but kind of this freedom to, you know, to create something new and uh, adapt very quickly. Is it, is it something that uh, would have been uh, of interest for you guys? Is it something that you feel that's at an advantage to, you know, to use pop-up for testing concepts. Yeah. And we do. In fact, we have, we did like a month of this like outdoor grill party pop-up in June. We, during the pandemic, we turned our entire parking garage attached to our restaurant into a mm. pop-up 90s inspired, like TGI Fridays went to Russia thing <laughs> for the summer. We, my We, I had a partnership with Lexus a few years ago and they required that I do some sort of special dinner series for it. And I was like, if I'm going to be forced to do this, I'm going to do something really fun. So for me, that was a really great creative experience because, so I asked chefs from out of town to come and we would kind of, the idea was we wanted the entire menu. We would equally contribute to the dishes on the menu, but we wanted to feel like you couldn't tell who made what. Like they were perfectly ma- meshed, called we called it interwoven, and that for me was one of the, some of the most fun creative process because mm-hmm. I forgot who said it down here, but the more constraints that you have, the better. Like if yeah, like that, yeah, that's what you were saying that like if tomatoes were available year round, that's like mm-hmm. you know you, then you never know what to do with them, but like having more parameters using what's in season, but then also having to do this and this and this, and like the more problems you have to deal with and solve at the same time, the more elegant of a solution you can get. And so I find things like that really helpful. I smile because I remember our conversation about your cherry dumplings, where in fact you wanted to, you had a technical issue, you know, challenge that you wanted to replicate and 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 to emphasize the cherry tastes, you know, and it was for you a technical challenge that you had to, you know, kind of a constraint, but it was from a technical standpoint. So I think that this is a little bit that your way of approaching maybe things as well. Yeah, I think that in my brain, and I think for a lot of people, the more free you are, the less creative of a solution you can get. It's mm-hmm. really, you. it's when you have a lot of challenges that you can get something really exciting, I think. Do so, do the young generation understand that when you ex- try to explain that to them? What do you mean? The idea that this is when you have a lot of cons- constraints or more constraint that you could be more creative and you can push yourself. Because I, I, I can see it even with children, you know, I have three kids. 
and you know the idea of putting guardrail and and you know trying to challenge them and so on sometimes it's not the most welcome or it could be the same with you know a team that you have to manage you know when you feel that you are developing guardrail people are feel that they are you know inside something and and they don't understand that in fact it's it's going to challenge them more and and they are going to you know, create, being more creative or they are going to, you know, further develop themselves and grow. I don't know if it's generational. I think it's more, it is a muscle you have to flex. Mm-hmm. And so I, there might be something to, you know, everything's available streaming all the time sort of mentality, possibly that makes it feel like you don't ever have to have parameters. But overall, I'd say, yeah, it's just more, it's a muscle you have to flex in order mm-hmm. to it for it to be easier and easier to use. And I often find myself when we have, because these days I'm, I do not operate the kitchen day to day. I just oversee the menu. And oftentimes when I'm meeting with our leadership team that I often have to push back and ask questions of like, well, are you sure that this is the right now is the right time to do this dish? And like things along those lines, I, I do find sometimes it's a, like a garden hose and you have to kind of do a lot. Like I do a lot of just settling the garden hose a little bit yeah going back to the question of you know the pop-up and this freedom of experimenting what do you think about that matt pop-ups drive me crazy i am not a person who can just do i'm way more regimented very much more like it'll take me three weeks to develop a dish and I don't put it on until I'm sure it's exactly what I want or things like that. I wish I had more, I guess, emotional freedom over that, but I don't, it's just not how my brain works. I'm, I guess I'm quite terse in that way. But that being said, I am the head chef of a wine bar that has 35 seats and a 13 menu item, you know? Mm -hmm. And so every day is kind of like a pop-up because we're only eight months in and we're open six days a week and I work a station every day and I do the entire menu. And like we talked about yesterday, that it is kind of a tapas style and I wanted to eat like a tasting menu if you were to order the entire thing. So there is a delicacy and a balance that has to be approached to that. But with full creative, if something comes in or something goes out of season, I like we live in a box, right? Like it is the, the friction is necessary. It forces your hand to really lean into a product or really lean into an ingredient and really appreciate it for what it is during, during its time. And so for me, although I live in admittedly a kind of constant state of uncomfortable because it is just me and one cook every day that has to oversee an entire service six days a week, it is kind of like a pop-up. It's a forced creative thing because if something's not at the market that week and you're screwed then it's like we have to change this dish you can't just substitute something randomly just because we can keep it kind of the same like it needs to be dialed in it needs to be you know perfect and so although a year ago before starting this project i would have said i hate pop-ups because there's like the traveling you have to like do all of like the moving and things like that it's like an offsite catering event for me it's just like it's just like such a there's so much background work that has to go into it to make sure that it's well executed Mm -hmm. but now it's like basically the exact same thing we just have a brick and mortar in 30 seats so it's like so it's interesting when i was listening to you and you know my friends here yesterday and then listening to you now there's one thing that relates a lot feels to our world in the food industry when I think about you and your approach, I think about the approach of like experimental design. That's how I see you. The idea of like, you know, looking at different ingredients, different variables and experimenting until I have, you know, something that I really am, 
satisfied with. So can, can you tell us a little bit more your, your method and your approach in terms of the creative process? So a lot of my time, I don't have a lot of time off. I have Sundays and I have a wife and a dog, but I also, I just sit, I just read and like, I think about the shit constantly. Sorry. Yeah. No, I just think about this all the time. And uh, you look at fresh sheets, you go to the market, you see something random in a book that you're like, we can, we can play around with that, you know? And then you go in and you start and then it sucks or it's fine, right? It's like you're 60% there, not many ready. And then you like keep tweaking it or you staff that, right? Staff meal that they eat it. They're like, this is great. And you're like, well, shit, maybe I could have used that. And then you dial back. Like, so like you guys didn't get yesterday, but this is like a, just an example. You guys didn't order the samosas yesterday, right? We have a samosas and I wanted it to be an Indian inspired dish because I, I, where I come from in Michigan has the highest population density wise of Middle Eastern food outside of the Middle East, out in Dearborn, which is right yep. outside of yep. Detroit. And so I was blessed with like amazing Lebanese food, amazing Indian food. And I have yet to find that in Portland. I'm sure it exists. But coming from that, I was like, okay, so if a French person were to try an approach, because we still are a Spanish and French style wine bar, if we were to try to approach a samosa and still do it delicately, like, how would you do that? So what wound up being was like a Lyonnaise style filling. So white wine, shallot, garlic, thyme, English peas folded in, things like that. And then for the actual sauce, I did a Comte sauce that's seasoned with Vaudevan, which is a curry based off of French colonialist part of India. So all of the flavors are like super dialed down for an Indian palate, right? But it's, I've been on the menu for three weeks and I've gone through three different fillings. I've gone through three different versions of the sauce variably because working the line every day, I'm physically touching and tasting every single dish on the menu at least like 20 times a day. Like to the point where like you kind of get sick of your own food. And, but it also means that you have such an intimate relationship where you're like, you know what, do you, I actually do know what this is missing because I've tasted this 20 times today. And so it actually needs 10% more of this and 20% less of this. And you're like, oh, finally. And then by that point, after you've changed everything like three or four times, you're finally proud of it. You have the finalized recipe and then you're like, well, now I'm bored of it. Take it off the menu. And maybe we will revisit it. Maybe we won't. But you are at least proud that you have a finalized product. Okay. That you've edited just like almost too many times. It's like creating an album, right? Like mm -hmm. someone has to sit in a booth and just listen to the same song 30 or 40 times and being like, all right, that's ready for the mm -hmm. publishing. That's for me. It's a question. When it comes to cocktail, the creative process, when you're looking at uh, developing a new recipe, are you trying to celebrate like a product, an ingredient, a spirit, and then you want to build, you know, like the notes that are going to go together with whatever you want to focus on? Or do you have like an overall concept of, you know, let's say a product, an idea, and then you are building, you know, those taste together in order to reach the final concept i think it's more the second one but my my menu we have 22 cocktails and one side of the menu is all shaken bright refreshing citrus and the other side spirit forward stirred old-fashioned manhattan kind of things and then on the spirit forward side we i'd say it's like 70 30 start with the spirit that we're trying to celebrate and then see what we're gonna feel like matches that because being a whiskey bar what we're Someone once told me that we were a cocktail bar with the, the biggest back bar they've ever seen, which was my favorite compliment I've had because we're, we're called Scotch Lodge and we have like 500 whiskeys, but we do mostly make cocktails. And then, so on that whiskey side, about half our cocktails are whiskey based and about half of them aren't to make sure that there's something for everyone. And on the whiskey side, we definitely don't want to overcharge people. We have like a $16 price point, which is kind of 
standard for Portland now, I think, but we want to make sure that it's not just wild turkey one one rye or like the Ritz and House and like all these normal things. So we, we don't use the same base for anything. So we're trying to introduce people to new spirits, sometimes different producers. And then kind of flop 70-30 on the other side of the more bright, refreshing, where it's usually more of a concept that we start with. And then we figure out what goes with that. My favorite thing about working here is this is the first place where we didn't have to build it for a certain market. At Blue Hour, it was like very specific pearl markets, which I guess I won't try and describe. But now, like on Saturday, I, I worked a bar four days a week. And on Saturday, I think I had six people from Portland at my bar top all night. And we we're booked all night. And we turn away probably about 40 people just because we're small, not because we're like trying to. So almost everyone's from out of town. So we don't have the preconceptions in a set market. And we don't know what we're going into. Most of my guests are from Seattle and California. And a lot are from Texas, which is weird. I think there's currently... A lot of people interested in leaving Texas, but there's what I really like is that we learned here that we can do whatever we feel passionate about and people will come to us and we don't have to follow certain trends. Are, are the people coming to your place more, you know, into brown spirit and, and whiskey and so on because it's called the Scotch Lodge or, I mean, because you said that you cater and then you mm -hmm. develop like new concepts to, for other you know, other consumers. So how did you do that? Because I'm guessing the original consumers were coming for whiskeys, correct? So you'd be surprised And my chef and my owner and I all feel like we named it. It was named the wrong thing afterwards. Um, because It was that, named, sorry, because there's the, a lot of background noise. Uh, the name might have been a mistake. Not necessarily a mistake. I don't want to say that. But because we definitely do scotch. I always tell bartenders when we're training or interviewing that you're going to spend 80% of your time on cocktails and 20% of your time on whiskey. So like we have a lot of whiskey, but whiskey ends up being half our sales. So like the way a lot of restaurant programs will, uh, how do I say this? I use uh, cocktail programs to, in a way, finance their, their food programs. You'll see in a lot of places. We definitely care a lot about whiskey. We've studied whiskey intensively, but it's kind of half our liquor sales is whiskey and half is cocktail, but we spend a lot more time on cocktails. So most people come in for the cocktails and, and I'd say like 20% of people who come in there are just there to drink whiskey. So it's it's really more of a cocktail bar, but the whiskey aspect is absolutely important. And then we really quickly realized that if one person is a super nerd about whiskey, the rest of your group probably isn't. So we really want everyone to have a good sure. time. And so okay. you, it's just kind of a full, I don't know if that answered that question. I'm sorry. It's kind of a full trying to hit both sides of that. I have one last question regarding innovation for Bunny. Obviously, Kashka, you know, so Belarus, Russian, you know, type of food. So there's a positioning here. So how do you stay current, innovate? Are you looking at incorporating trends that you see, you know, popping up, you know, in the food world? How do you combine local ingredients as well as the positioning of, you know, your restaurants? So I'm, I'm curious about this. I mean, a lot to unpack there. We... Every item on our menu has a different story of how it got there and always will. Sometimes it's like, and especially, well, let me backtrack for a second. When we talk about the place, the former Soviet Union, it's, there's so much cross-pollination. My family is from what is now Belarus, but when they left, that didn't exist. And their passports said that they were Jewish, not Russian or Belarusian or Soviet. It's they, that was a separate nationality. So like the place and their na like a nationality and where I'm actually from is a moving target. 
And there's so much there for political reasons. There was so much cross pollination that like there are parts to what they cook at home that are actually Uzbek or Siberian or Latvian. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just Russia, Belarus, it's a much larger swath. So that's something. But anyway, when I think about how dishes come about and what that has to do with that place, there's a sort of a triangle of like my childhood experiences, my experiences as an adult living in Portland with the products and resources available to me here and my work and research and travel that I've done as as a adult that has nothing to do with my childhood, but in that part of the world. And so there's sort of a triangulation. And sometimes it's really very much about this, the, you know, the archetype of this dish, but using the ingredients from here. Sometimes the ingredients from here happen to be identical to a really important ingredient from over there. And so there's, I find the similarities. And sometimes it's about a recent trip and it has nothing to do with my childhood. Sometimes it's all about like, how do I make myself feel five again? And so there's like all sorts of things from different places and different reasons. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, especially since the war in Ukraine started, I had to think a lot about what is important to me in the food that I cook and what is what I can be proud of and versus disgusted by. And I think that's a conversation a lot of people involved in food in from that part of the world have had to have with, have with themselves. There was a period of time where like I couldn't even stomach like cooking the food, right? That I grew up eating. And it's like, what does it mean to me anymore? And what I ultimately came down to is kind of where I started talking about this, which is that it's not about the place that it's called now or how it got there or any of that. It's about my family story. Mm -hmm. And so I focus mostly on how is this, what does this mean to me and my family and sharing my family story rather than a place. Okay. I'm looking at you guys. We have, you know, a little bit less than half an hour in front of us. So I want to make sure that I'll, you know, let you as well ask the question that you, if you have any question to ask, I have, a lot of other questions. First of all, thank you all for, for being here and for opening your doors to us. This is kind of a two-part question about uh, scalability. So the first part is, you know, for our customers that are here, how could you recommend with some of these ingredients and trends, you know, bringing them to an audience nationally? And the second part is, you know, for, for myself cooking at home, not having a pantry of incredible fresh herbs and spices from Oregon, what could you recommend for elevating home cooking? I mean, I, the, the second one's really easy, and that is salt. I think that most of us here would agree that folks at home tend to not use enough salt and learning how to season properly will take something that feels really bland and boring to something that you feel like you could have had at a restaurant. So... Salt. Any kind of salt? Because there's a lot of salt available. I mean, you know, iodized salt has a little bit of a funky taste to it. And the other thing to note is that salt by volume can be different amount of saltiness because of the shape of the crystal and how it's formed. And so you always want to be aware that what you're using and how it feels in your hands will affect if you're doing it by seasoning, by, by feel and 
whatever, just sprinkling around will be very, very different. And the most like basic is like the two big brands of kosher salt, which a lot of people use as like an inexpensive non-iodized option are Diamond, Crystal and Morton's. And Morton's is about almost twice as salty by volume as Diamond. So you would always want to weigh your salt, but that's, yeah. I think CSAs are also a good option for that second question to circle back. If you have those available, a lot of farmers that at least in Portland that we use offer CSAs as well. CSA um, stands for what? Sorry? Community supported agriculture. Oh, yeah. So they'll give you like a little farm box week or bi-weekly. It's a fun way to just kind of like force yourself to try some new things. Yep. You know, you get all this stuff that just shows up. So you kind of have to figure it out. Um, and then we have a world of recipes in our phones. No, a lot of cooks, myself included, Google a lot, a lot of stuff sometimes. So we have resources, you know, once you learn some skills, you can kind of look up some stuff and get some inspiration and taste things like tasting things raw is the biggest thing for me. Like my cooks took some learning when like we're getting farm fresh onions, even it's like slice that off and taste, like try everything, like just taste everything. The first part of the question was more from an industry standpoint on the food side, not home cooking. The idea of, we, we talked about the great product from the Northwest here, Portland is how a product developer, you know, for instance, can leverage and scale up, you know, product from this region. I mean, just to that point, I remember now what I was going to say about it, which is that I think this comes from my experience with Kachka. When I opened Kachka, I was terrified that no one would want to eat this food because I, growing up, was told basically that it was weird and gross. And I only had herring on our opening menu because of something else not working out. And I knew that I could slot that in without having to do a mountain of prep on our opening day. And it, it turned out that that herring dish became something that everybody always orders. It's like photographed. It's like on a must list in Portland, all these things. And it's herring, which I thought I took, I assumed that diners in Portland or really anywhere in the U.S. would never touch with a 10 foot pole. And so I think when you're talking about your customers and what they're willing to have in like a broader scale, I think don't sell them short. Don't assume that they're not going to be willing to try something because they probably are more adventurous than you think. I wanted to ask you a question for you, Bunny, is that the creative aspect, is it becoming more difficult or less difficult with time and experience? It's more of a head game. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's harder because you, yeah, there's just a compounding of things of like, you know what you've done before that's successful and you somewhat are running out of those baseline ideas that seemed really obvious to you as, at first. And I think there's just more pressure. And then there's the other part of it, which is that I, I actually don't want to be the one that creates. I want to help somebody else to create at this point. And that's, I'm really good at making things. I'm really bad at teaching, managing other people. And being a business owner, you spend a lot less time doing something and more time trying to watch other people to help, help them do the thing. And I'm not very good at that, I think. I think nobody is naturally. So yeah, it's all harder. <laughs> Tara, you talk about a lot of inspiration coming from, you know, the market, fruits, what's available. Do you have example of inspiration or things that you have done by integrating like savory ingredients in, into your dessert? Version? Yeah. I actually don't really like dessert, so I bring a savory aspect. It's surprising, I know. <laughs> I bring a savory aspect to pretty much all of my desserts. A good example would be I have a cheesecake panna cotta on at Ava Jeans right now, but it's sun gold jam that I caramelize. Uh, I make a sun gold twill that's like almost looks like glass. 
And then I use a basil chia seed oil. And it kind of just tastes like a caprese salad if it was sweet in a way. It's not super sweet, but I like to utilize vegetables a lot in my desserts because I just think it adds a fun aspect and it's a little bit more approachable. Like what, for instance, so squashes, you know, we can... Yeah, squash know. blossoms is a good one. I like to candy those. I like to make sorbettos with cucumbers and different herbs. Um, you'll pretty much always see an herb on a dessert I do, even if it's just garnish or an oil on the plate. I feel like it really rounds out pastry in itself anyway, because I'm not one to, I also don't really like chocolate. So you will never really see me having like a big chocolate cake dessert. It's going to be more of like a floral note, herbaceous note. I use a lot of creams and different dairies. I really like goat's milk and sheep milk. I like the earthy flavor. And I think textures are a really big one for dessert as well. Salt we just, is my we just stopped at, sorry to interrupt you, we just stopped at Salt and Straw and they had like on a special, they were running an ice cream that was goat cheese together with oh, right. berry and habanero. Yeah. That was really, like, that was amazing as, a, was as a combo. Yeah. Nice. But so, you know, obviously consumers are coming to restaurants, they are looking for really something, you know, different and mm-hmm. unique. It's really different when they are cooking at home or, you know, buying things on retail, you know, that they are doing, you know, uh, cooking with. So if you had one advice for, you know, people doing, let's say, some muffins at home and they want to integrate like the component of culinary and, you know, salty space and vegetables. Right. What would they don't, do? Don't answer me carrots. So be on carrots. What, what, yeah, I mean, what trade else? that for squash. That's a pretty easy one. Think about beets more. You know, instead of strawberries, earth, our earthy vegetables are always really easy to integrate into things. You know, you can use different kinds of flowers that are more savory, like rye flour or semolina or something like that. Um, the obvious one would be like cornmeal, you know, even like, you know, bugs, you know, grasshoppers are always a fun addition to things. Even if you put it in the batter, it makes a cool, interesting texture. And also like chilies, everyone loves those, so... Just a small amount goes a long way and it just elevates everything. You know, it just won't be just sugar, butter, and eggs. Okay. So my question is kind of going back to inspiration. So I know that your current environment and seasonality definitely plays a huge part when you're building your menu. But is anything from, let's say, different experiences, your childhood or young adult life, you know, has that taken a role into playing when you're building your menu? And if so, do you have an example of something that's currently on one of your menus that you've drawn inspiration from your past? I've got one. My family was not a bunch of bakers. They didn't really bake anything at home, but my dad really loves vanilla pudding. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's like bananas, vanilla pudding, vanilla wafers. So I decided to do a baked Alaska in that style. So it's banana gelato, vanilla meringue, a brown sugar cake. And then I make my own vanilla cookies. Then I blend them up with fat and it becomes a butter. And I use that on the bottom. And it's kind of just like an ode to dad. I mean, with me, I think the reason that I lean so much in the seasonality, I grew up very poor uh, and I don't have much of a culinary background from my childhood. I didn't really have fresh vegetables until I was an adult. Everything came from a can. You know, I was a picky eater as a kid. So I just ate, you know, burgers. I wanted to just ketchup and cheese on it and nothing else. And it wasn't until I 
I was kind of a picky eater up until right before I went to culinary school. I went vegan for a minute because I had a crush on a vegan girl at one point. <laughs> and it just forced me to kind of like eat some different things. And I ended up staying vegan for like a year. And that was kind of like got me out of my comfort zone. And I just leaned into it. So I guess my aha moments have been trying those vegetables. You know, once I hit culinary school, once I started going to these local farms, it was things I'd never tasted before. And any like pepper I'd had, it just been like from Safeway, whatever was the cheapest, like it wasn't from a farm. So I think that's why that is my biggest inspiration because I don't really have a culinary history like that. So I feel really lucky that Asian things are kind of like really in right now. When I was younger in high school, the idea that I hope this isn't offensive, but the, the idea that white people know what sriracha or gochujang or bubble was was like unheard of. That was like it was really weird if you if you use words like that, especially growing up. Hope this is not offensive also in portland which is like kind of statistically the whitest city in the country but all of uh, my bartenders represent on my menu i do have most of the menu and there are a lot of things that start off with kind of a childhood memory so like though i'm japanese i have other non-japanese friends so like mooncakes are kind of a thing that you get passed around mid-autumn festival it's a lotus seed paste and there's like duck egg yolks and everything so starting with like a flip concept that probably my most popular cocktail is uh, the Lotus Esprit, and it's a toasted Lotus Seed Orja that we do with, and you drink it with tea. So we have a tea-infused Japanese whiskey with Genmaicha lemon. And then, but originally, you know, we were doing egg yolks because, like, thematically, that was going to be the whole thing is that, you know, there's egg yolks in the mooncake, but being able to pivot away from the inspiration because you guys came in yesterday and I talked about a lot of Asian-inspired cocktails. People are putting themselves in a box where every single thing in that cocktail has to be from that country. And I think that's kind of silly and i think that there's a lot of cocktail world out there that could be incorporated so like the whole like you guys had the juicing room which was also kind of childhood inspired from those little yakult yogurt drinks that like kids have in their lunch to get probiotics and then making like the whole like which this bar is famous for using yogurt and cocktails but then the yogurt mint thing is very kind of eastern but then the yuzu and then the kind of the asian influences so kind of you know being childhood inspired and then it's not mine but when you first said that the first cocktail i thought of was one of my older bartenders grew up with lemon cooler cookies which i had never heard of and so we do like a house lemon curd from scratch and do a cocktail with bourbon and vanilla lemon curd lemon juice we just don't reduce it all the way so it's shakeable and then we the rim is lemon kool-aid powder and powdered sugar mixed together so it's like everything starts off almost all of our menu starts off as a memory of someone's and then we all work together in a way to kind of elevate it but make sure it's not in a box and then like 10 percent of our menu is like we need to make people happy so there's like i guess i kind of said the opposite of that earlier but like something needs to be everywhere so we work outside of our comfort zone in that way but i don't know i sort of mentioned this before but i'll go into it deeper but so much of what we do is based on childhood memory and experience and sometimes not just mine especially these days my chef de cuisine is mexican and my husband is mexican who's our co-owner and so a lot of times we'll be talking about stuff and finding ways that there's like similarities between russia and mexico for example culinarily and things like that there's a wide range of places where that ends up going and so i can't think of like a particular dish but i just know like it's just it's fun to find the similarities and weave those together and then be able to think about a dish from that other angle, even though it's just like one ingredient removed or maybe one method removed, it make change a change things incredibly. But as far as like specifically to, to speak to childhood memories for me, what I find really interesting is how it's something could be your childhood memory and 
affect somebody else the same way without you like a total stranger we get notes and we, all management goes into a log right and so just a couple days ago there was a note about somebody eating our pilmeni at the bar and crying pilmeni are dumplings are from Siberia and for me the way we make our pilmeni have to be exactly the way I remember from my childhood. It's like a, one of those core memories. And there was like a note about somebody literally crying into their bowl of pilmeni because it immediately made them think of their grandmother. Right. And I would love, not love. I, I am, sh would be shocked to even hear that just once, but this is, you know, we're nine and a half years at this point of operation. And those stories happen probably once every week or so that like somebody ate something and then it, they were in tears or like, like just sort of misty eyed or mentioning some deceased relative or something. And I think the really cool part there is when you feel seen because your childhood memory is also a, a connection for somebody else. And that's a really cool part of it. And that happens. I grew up in a pretty straightforward culinary, I guess, upbringing with my parents, Midwest, pretty steak and potatoes, like nothing crazy. Both sets of great grandparents on both sides are agriculturally based, one in Alabama and one in Ontario in Canada. So pretty, pretty straightforward. But like I mentioned earlier, Detroit being such a melting pot of different nationalities and ethnicities, I grew up eating a lot of like a wide breadth of very like authentic different cuisines. And so for me, I could still like reach out on that. Like I said, with like the Indian play earlier. Right. But then also it's not really like, I guess a childhood experience, but since my early twenties, my now wife and I have tried to make a trip to Europe is every other year. I mean, it always breaks the bank. Right. But it's always like being in like Andalusia in Southern Spain, where there's like a huge Islamic population, there's a huge uh, Sephardic Jewish community, there's a huge Spanish up, like the melt, seeing other places melting pots and then being like, oh, do you remember when we were in a bar half in the bag and we had X, Y, and Z? And you we were like, that was good. We can do a play on that now here and things like that. So I guess it's not from a childhood memory of it's more young adulthood and into, you know, but just tying back into memories that you have and taste memories, the experience you were having at the time, things like that. So. so echoing what everybody said, thank you so much for your time today. I love being able to get into the mind, your culinary minds. I was just really curious of non-traditional points of inspiration, you know, outside of cookbooks or looking at other restaurants. I have a background in R&D, so sometimes I'll look at like a candle and be like, oh, that's really interesting flavor combination. So I was curious if you guys had other points of inspiration that you go to something that come to my, comes to mind for me is in eastern europe at the farmers markets there's always like a like almost like a witch doctor who's selling her random dried herbs and things teas that you're supposed to make roots for this and that and nobody in that part of the world consumes those for their culinary like benefits or flavors. They're all just purely for medicinal purposes. And so I find a lot of inspiration, like birch buds, for example, are incredible and make an amazing vodka infusion. But when I tell people in that part of the world that that's what I'm using it for, they're like, you mean just like to drink? Like it's not for your joints or whatever the thing is. And so for me, that's often an inspiration is like the medicinal applications in for me, it's Eastern Europe, but it can be anywhere because it's just a change 
in their perspective of why they're using kind of like you're saying with candles and like the sense they're like talking about the sense probably, but like there could be a really good like reason to want to eat that same flavor profile. Right. And so the same thing with the uh, medicinal applications than being able to seen as a culinary application. Any, anyone else? Scent memory is a big one for me. I don't know if it's necessarily inspiration behind a dish, but like I I'm very like chaotic in my head. So sometimes like I like to just go like, be outside and I'll just like space out and like listen to just nothing. And that, that piece will like harness some things and like the smell of nature will harness a lot for me. So definitely smell is a big one for me. Um, I don't do a lot of like plating inspiration, so there's not much, but I know a lot of chefs who like really harness on like architecture and, and things like that for their plating. True. They go to museums and color associations and so on. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, I guess like in the example you're saying with candles, right, is like using the abstract for inspiration to be used elsewhere. My father was is a is still, I guess, is a professional musician. And so tying the relevancy into music, into what we do here and kind of like what we we're talking about with my menu at um, Heavenly is like not every dish can be loud. Not every dish, you have to compose it so that at the end of it, the album makes sense. At the end of it, the menu makes sense. And so for me, listening to an album front to back, instead of just being like, I like these two singles, I'm going to listen to that. Like, listen to an album front to back. Like, for me, does that. Like, reading a novel. Not every chapter can be a cliffhanger because otherwise you get fatigued by it. And so for me, looking at the intention behind why something was put, the tracks were put in an order for a reason, right? Like the chapters, the story goes somewhere for a certain reason that keeps you intrigued without burning you out. And then kind of using that abstractly to approach towards food is like we talked about yesterday, two of the dishes you guys had were quite delicate. And then one of them is like a stupid little sandwich, right? But the fact that you can have the duality makes it kind of a choose your own adventure and kind of gives it a little more diversity to what you do. I don't know if that's answers but yeah mm -hmm. treating art as art and finding inspiration in how they can how you can approach them simultaneously yeah, there's one last question um kind of looking towards the future of like where you see either your customers valuing or like yourselves so besides obviously making really great tasting food and what you mentioned about sustainability and like what's local and seasonal are there any other like big trends that you see are or are becoming more and more important to so like making your plating really instagrammable you know introducing new novel ingredients anything like that i mean for me it's something to like very much be aware of i've always been in the mentality of you have to learn the rules to break the rules you know so i i definitely steer the way of not necessarily doing anything for Instagram ability, but it is something to be aware of when you're plating. Like, for example, we're buying new plateware for our restaurant right now. So we like intentionally set it out on the table during all sorts of different lighting and took pictures with our phones to see like which one like just pops the best on the table. I think it's definitely something we all have to be aware of with the new generation um, and with just how the world is going. For me personally, though, I try not to let it guide me too much. It's kind of the afterthought. It's get the ingredients, come up with the food, make sure it tastes good, figure out how to execute it. And then we look at how it'll, how it'll look or how it'll come across, you know, um, uh, on social media. I know this isn't the answer anybody wants, but I, we work a lot on the presentation of our drinks and Instagram is really important for that. And I don't want to say that Instagram is more important, but 
because the flavor is the most important, the service is the most important, but I think tasting first with your eyes before you taste with your mouth. And I think that starts, I've been having this conversation because we've been working on our social media, that that's not just looking at the drink, that's reading the drink on the menu. And that's actually, since so many of our people have never been in before, I get mostly first time guests because we get a lot of people from out of town. That starts on social media. They've decided how they're going to feel about you before they get there. Your reputation, like everything is like, you know, one of the questions Will asked me when he interviewed was about wins. And I was saying that people come in and they've decided whether or not they're going to have a good time. And there's people who are here and they've like, like the easiest guests are someone who just had kids and they haven't been out for a year and they've read about us and they think it's cool and they're going to have a good time no matter what you do. And it's really easy. But then the hardest guests, and we get this about like once or twice a week is someone who'll come in and they'll be like, well, I was at Attaboy last week. Let's see what you can do or, which is kind of rude, but, but winning these people over, which we can't always do. We try our best is important and they're coming in and people will order drinks without reading our menu they will show us pictures of the drinks that they want and i've told people like hey it's it's gotta it's gotta look good like certain people like if, if nobody takes pictures all night it's kind of i and i know that like this is like the opposite of what everybody focuses on and nobody wants to be an instagram bar and i don't want to be an instagram bar and i always tell my bartenders when we're training that the appearance and the photographability is one percent but we're not going for 99%. We're going for 100%. So you have to do the 1%, even if the other percent's more important. And then, because most of my, all of my team is older than me. And it's, they come in with this like, oh, you know, I've been doing this for a really long time. This is what's most important. I'm like, it's not about what's most important. It's all important. We're going to do everything. Like, the so social media matters, unfortunately. Okay. Everyone, thank you again very much for your time. Thank you for welcoming us to your locations. We still want to go this afternoon at Kashka. We are exciting. For the other, thank you for our experience, you know, yesterday. Thank you. What a truly remarkable discussion we have had today. A deep dive into the inspirations, journey, and culinary philosophies for some of the Portland finest. From Chef Matt Meyer's creativity at Heavenly Creatures, Chef Bonnie Morales' intriguing journey at Kashka, Chef Cal Christie's experimental flair at Street Disco, and the mixology wizard Katsumi Manabe at Scotch Lodge, and finally pastry chef Tara Lewis' creation at Tusk. We have had a truly diverse culinary landscape. Their shared passion for the Pacific Northwest seasonal ingredient and unique approach to pop-ups shows the dynamism and creativity that is so fundamental in Portland culinary scene. I hope this episode has given you some fresh perspectives, new sources of inspiration, and a deeper appreciation for the dedication and creativity that these professionals pour into their craft. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to our newsletter on the website flavorsunknown.com. Join us again next time on Flavors Unknown as we continue our journey to uncover the secrets behind the industry's leading professionals, their inspirations, their stories, and their unique flavors. My next guest will be celebrity chef Manit Shohan from Nashville. Stay curious, stay inspired, and keep exploring the unknown. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.